Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. Go look at Isaiah 43 with me, uh, 43 verse 18. It says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. For behold, I will do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That, that word, you know, where it says, do not remember or do not consider the things of old, it really translates to this idea. It's not a mental imagination. It's not just don't think about it, forget it, move on. It doesn't mean that. It actually, it, it actually holds on this different experience that I think we all can relate to. When it says, do not consider or do not remember the things of old, it actually means do not uh, pull the past into the present. And it's like this. It's like you could be having the best day, super happy. All these amazing things are going your way. Um, you get to the, you know, you get through Dunkin' Donuts and they go, the last guy forgot his coffee. Do you want to, you know, and, and, and you're, you're, you know, someone pays for your bill at Chili's, right? And you're just going about things. Things are great. Then all of a sudden you see that red Ford Taurus. You remember somebody in your life. It pulls back a memory. You think about the memory. And then all of a sudden the emotions of pain, hurt, regret, fear, anxiety, whatever it is that they are not present experiences, they are from years ago, all of a sudden they become ever-present emotions that dominate the atmosphere. Does anybody? That's what it means by do not remember the things of old. What it's saying is, is do not allow the past emotions or experiences to become present experiences uh, in your memory and in, in your mind. Do not remember them. Do not think, uh, uh, um, do not allow it to influence your next step. Do not let the past affect the present. Don't allow it to influence your next step. It's almost like um, when you, you know, it, it even brings up this idea of like, do not allow it to influence what you call as wisdom for your next moves. Don't allow it to be an influential voice in the inner conversation about what you're about to do. Do not remember the things of old. In Luke 9, 62, Jesus said, whoever places his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Have you ever, ever read this verse and been terrified? That's one of the scary ones, right? Like, ah, not fit for the kingdom. Can I just clear the air for a second? One of the things I need us to understand in, in when Jesus uh, presented the gospel, Jesus actually presents two gospels in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus presents the gospel of salvation and he presents the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of salvation is a free gift of eternal life. That whoever believes in the Father will not perish but have eternal life. It is the free gift. But how many of you guys have ever read through some of the things that Jesus said and goes, the free gift doesn't feel free anymore. This feels really expensive. Whoever will lose his life will gain it. Ah, you know, like we're reading it and it just doesn't, it's like you tricked me. 
Jesus presents two gospels. The gospel of salvation is a free gift of eternal life and the gospel of the kingdom is the violent agenda of heaven to to bring heaven into the earth and to increase the lordship of Jesus Christ into every sphere of society and he wants to do it in you and through you. So it says that there will be volunteers in the day of his power, Psalms 110. Those that will sign up and says, I don't just want to go to heaven. I want to bring heaven to earth earth. And so I don't just, I bring it here now in me. I'm not waiting to get right in heaven. I want to get right now. And I want to be a volunteer. Use my life for your glory. And if that means I pick up my cross and follow you daily, I will suffer with Jesus. I would see your glory in the earth. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And so when he says this, he says, whoever, you know, you know, looks back is not fit for the kingdom. That word fit, it translates not as capable of going into eternity, it actually translates is, is not a positioned for usefulness. It says, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not capable of being used in the kingdom. I find it equally as scary, but let's put it in the right category. He's saying those that put their hand to the plow and look back, these ones that I can't use them in the kingdom. They're not positioned for usefulness. They're not capable of carrying what I want them to carry. And this passage is is a direct correlation. It's an obvious direct correlation to the story of Lot's wife and Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, are we all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't want to get too uh, descriptive, but Sodom and Gomorrah we know is, I mean, this place of absolute horrendous evil where it literally took over the entire culture of a city and a people. So evil that when Abraham pleaded with God, can you find just a few that are faithful? God could not even find a few that were faithful. There is no equivalent on the earth today of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I know that there's some places where you go, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. No, there is no equivalent to what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so evil, so immoral, and so perverse. The angels of the Lord appeared in Sodom and Gomorrah to Lot and to his family, and even they were subject to the threat of sexual abuse. It was such a perverse and gross society. And yet in the, in the pleading of Abraham, God spares Lot and his wife. And God delivers them. And they are running from Sodom and Gomorrah on the day that God was going to consume it with fire and to destroy all of the evil and all the perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. God preserves Lot and his wife and he makes a way of liberty for them. And in Genesis 19, verse 24, it says, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew the cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, she looked back and then she became a pillar of salt. Anybody ever been confused by that story? We know that she looks back, but that word to look back doesn't just mean she wanted to see the scene. It doesn't mean a physical eye thing necessarily where she just went, you know, like, I think I'd probably want to see if like fire was falling out of the sky. And I'd be like, dang, I want to, you know, like I kind of want to watch it happen, you know. That's not what happened. That, that word to look back, it means that she looked with longing at Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story of her becoming salt, and the other things we have to understand is that, you know, we think of salt and we think of like seasoning our food, like, 
dang, throw a little salt on that steak. And Tim, what happens if we throw a little salt on that steak? Come on. It seasons it. It brings life. So much life that even, you know, Jesus said to be the salt of the earth, right? Well, that's not what salt was used for at this moment in history. In this moment of history, salt was used to preserve things to last longer. And, and so what, one of the things we have to understand about this story is that when she looked back with longing in her heart, God turned her into the very image of her heart, which was what? That she wanted to preserve within herself the very thing that God was liberating her from. That she looked back on a life in a culture of sin. She looked back on a history that God was liberating her from and says, and looked back with actually like, remorse and sadness that she will no longer have a connection to that place or, or access to that life or to go back to those things or those people or those ways that there's something in here that wanted to preserve what was behind her, but the very thing that God was liberating her from. Jesus then says in Luke 17, he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. All of these things, Jesus saying, you know, in, in, in Isaiah 43, do not remember the things of old. Then saying again, whoever, you know, whoever loses life will gain it. Don't, want, don't try to preserve the past. The story of don't put your hand to the plow and look back. All of these things are calls to burn the bridge to set fire to the chariots, to sink the ships, burn the bridge, cut the past from, from you entirely. Because when we actually preserve an attachment to past pain, to past loss, to past sin, to past regrets, to past uh, uh, offenses and distrust and betrayals and experiences, when we keep an emotional attachment to the things that God has liberated us from, what we do is we actually create a portal in our life where those past things that we've been liberated from have access to actually influence the present. And this is why Jesus says, I can't use you. Why? I know that's heavy. Because I can't use you. Why can't he use you? Because there are influencers in your life right now that cause your yes to me to waver and it actually brings fear that I've cut away, that I've dealt with, distrust, offenses, caution, that you once called wisdom but were never wisdom. All those things you've harbored in your life, you're like Lot's wife and I can't use you when you keep an emotional attachment that influences your yes to me now. Just making sense. If you retain emotional attachment to the past, you will not be positioned for usefulness for the kingdom caused before you. Why? Because the past will have present access to influence your willingness to participate in the kingdom cause. God could be bringing just like incredible relationships that are so significant and important in your life right now. I mean, you think that some of your loss has changed your landscape. Maybe some of his provision is also changing the landscape of your future. And God could be providing and making new ways, but you can't see it because there's so much distrust in your life that you're living at such arm's length in distrust that you're not actually investing into the very things that he's providing right now. Are you hearing me? We have to burn the bridge. God has something for you in this new season, 
But sometimes we get immobilized by our attachment to unbelief and distrust and fear. How do we burn the bridge? You guys all right? I love you. How do we burn the bridge? Go to me, Joshua chapter five. Now, this is something I've taught on many times, um, almost every new year. I, I teach on this, but I want to bring it back again. And I'll never apologize for just preaching this one constantly. And, and where we find ourselves in Joshua five is that we find Israel after 40 years. Now, imagine Israel. I want you to try to put it in all its context, right? Israel has been delivered from Egypt and under the rule of Pharaoh and God's miracle provision comes in and plagues Egypt and God delivers them and he parts the Red Sea and all of Israel pass through the Red Sea and God appears by cloud by day and a fire by night. Fire comes on the mountain. God meets in a pillar of smoke with Moses face to face as he provides handwritten scripts of the Ten Commandments. The law is produced. Manna appears every day. They're collecting into baskets. It's wild to me sometimes how we're going through hell in our lives and we go, man, I'm just going through a desert. Because when I read the desert, it sounds like heaven on earth. So when people go, I'm going through a desert, I'm like, man, that's awesome. You must be having some face-to-face encounters with God in this season. Because it was a supernatural time for the nation of Israel. But they're wandering through the desert. But as they're wandering through the desert, God's providing, but they're not changing. And they're wandering for 40 years they wandered. And until in Joshua 1, after Moses had died, the Lord speaks and says, Joshua, Moses is dead. Now Joshua, arise and lead them into the promised land. Now I could do a whole teaching why the transition had to change. I'm not going to do that today. But Joshua then arises as a leader of a new generation that's going to lead them out of the desert and into the promised land. Now, I want you to imagine that there's a whole generation that were enslaved in in Egypt that are now dead. And there's a whole new generation that's all, all they have known is the customs of one generation that was learned in Egypt, passed down to Israel, and then was actually sustained in Israel, and they wandered homeless as a nation for 40 years. A whole generation. All they knew was the desert. And here they are now as a whole nation and a whole generation of Israelites crossing into the promised land. And they, they camp out by the river and God says to him, don't go on to Jericho just yet. We have some business to take care of. And he calls Joshua in, uh, in, in Joshua chapter five and he goes, now I want you to circumcise all of the, the uh, men of war. The whole generation who has not been circumcised in the desert, we're gonna circumcise them now. That's a pretty significant task. Joshua, you're going to do it yourself. So get some flint knives and you're going to circumcise these men. Now, the circumcision was, a, was a, an actual act that was given to Abraham as a covenant between God and man. And in the, in the, the, the act of, of, of um, circumcision is the cross of Jesus Christ. You just, I actually asked my staff, like, how far can I go teaching circumcision on Sunday? And, they, and, and we worked through it. I wanted to go deep, guys. <laughs> but maybe it gets slightly inappropriate. So we'll do a small group and we'll, a sermon series and they'll be like PG-13 or something. Um, but in, in, the, in, in it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most beautiful gospel symbols 
of the sacrifice that would be made for us was actually marked in the body of the Israelites and it represented that, they, that there was a covenant between God and man and it was a blood covenant that would actually consecrate their lives wholly unto the Lord. And there's the very sacrifice that Jesus made for you and I, he became our circumcision. <sighs> Beautiful picture. But here we have a whole generation who has never been circumcised. They do not bear the mark of the messianic bridegroom who would become blood for us so that we could be consecrated to the Lord. And he goes, don't take on Jericho. Don't go into any battles until they've all been circumcised. And in Joshua chapter five, that's exactly what they do. And they circumcise a whole generation. And this is what it says. And it says, <clears throat> verse six, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised the sons whom he had raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so it was when they had finished being circumcised, all the people that they stayed in their places in their camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal. Now, one of the things we have to understand what he's saying is he's saying that after they're entirely healed from this like ceremony of circumcision, at the day that they're healed, it actually, it, what it says is, now I've turned away the reproach of Egypt. This is a significant moment because we're talking about a, a generation, a nation that has been living under the reproach of the slavery of Egypt for 40 or more years. And that word reproach literally means, it means like the taunting of your enemy or the identity of shame and disgrace has been worn like a garment on the nation of Israel. And although they had been delivered from Egypt, they wandered still slaves of Egypt. And they wandered with this mentality and they adopted customs and beliefs that were passed down to the generational line. And although their inheritance was milk and honey, they were eating the flavorless manna in the desert. And yes, the Lord provided for them, but they could not participate in the promise of provision until they had come out from the identity of slaveship. Does this make sense? And so it says in that day, when the, when the sinful nature is cut away, today you belong to me. And it says, and now all of that identity of, of the past is off of your life entirely. And then it says this, and it says, and now they camped there and kept the Passover. It says, and they ate the produce of the land on that day after Passover, the unleavened bread and the parched grain on the very same day. And the manna stopped showing up. So the nation of Israel walks into the promised land. The manna keeps appearing. And they're like, what the heck? I want milk and honey. Why do you keep still providing manna? Because they were still slaves. But the day that it was turned off of them and their identity had shifted from slave to sons of God, the chosen people, when they begin to understand who they really were and they bore the mark on their life, that day they started participating in the very promise that he had for them, the land of milk and honey. What, what is this all a picture of? This is a picture of repentance. And I want to, I just for a few minutes, are you guys okay? I just want to get into this just for a couple minutes. But um, how many of you know that sin is not supposed to be cleansed? It's supposed to be cut away. 
Sin is not supposed to be cleansed. It's supposed to be cut away. We often ask God to wash us, but God wants to do more than wash you. He wants to change you. Repentance, he doesn't want to clean what's vulnerable to sin. He wants to cut it away from your life. We have to move beyond forgiveness and we have to move into transformation. I think when we're living in the constant state of I need more forgiveness, I need more forgiveness, I need more forgiveness, we're dipping ourselves in a river, but God goes, I want to cut it off. I want to change you, entirely change you from the inside out. Uh, you know, we, we often come and we plead with the Lord, but repentance is not an act of pleading. Like we've got it completely wrong. Repentance is not an act of pleading. It is not submitting a request for forgiveness. It is not just the acknowledgement that I have sinned and I need mercy. That is an important acknowledgement. Repentance is a transformational process. And it is a process of you yielding your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and him uprooting everything that is vulnerable to sin, not just sin itself. It is a process of changing you from the inside out. That word metanoia is a word for repent. And, and it means to change your mind, to change the inner man, or to be changed after being with God, to become completely different. And we, you know, I think one of the mistakes we make is that we just leave repentance for sin, but repentance is not just for sin. It's for everything in me vulnerable to sin. We often wait until we sin and we go, oh, God, forgive me. I need mercy. But one of the things that repentance shouldn't just start with regret. Repentance should start with the confrontation of, I don't think like you. I don't live like you. I don't fully trust you. I don't fully believe you. I'm crippled by fear. That's where repentance begins. Because there are things in me that are now vulnerable and have an appetite in my sinful nature. And God doesn't just want to cleanse me. He wants to reach in and cut away fear from my life and change me from the inside out. Is making sense? You guys all right? <clears throat> Re repentance goes beyond sin. It reaches into the inner man. It, it, it pulls fear up by the roots. It evicts insecurity permanently from your life. It turns away the reproach of your years of slavery, that you've been, you have been enslaved by things in your life and, and repentance circumcises your heart to turn away the reproach of the former years. Repentance submits the taunting mantras of the enemy over your life and cuts them away and it indoctrinates you with truth. How many of you guys know you need a good brainwashing? I know it's a trigger like, for some people. You need to get your, wash, your mind washed and renewed by truth. You need, you need to have an indoctrination of, of, of messianic doctrine that's changed you from the inside out. It rewires your mind and beliefs to dissociate from fear and align you to courage. And I love repentance, but repentance is not a moment. Repentance is a process and it opens the door for grace and grace comes in through the doorway of repentance and it starts changing you from the inside out. Not by telling you how filthy and awful you are, but reminding you that you are the chosen and beloved covenant people of God. This makes sense. All the things that can identify as such, repentance opens the door for the voice of grace to come in and remind you who you are. It positions you to eat the fruit of where you're called to be, not the food of the past seasons of slavery in your life. 
You're living in a moment where God's inviting you right now to live by faith and to say yes to him. And you're, you want manna. You're trying to eat manna when God's trying to invite you to milk and honey. And you start feasting on fear and anxiety and worry and insecurity. But he's saying, stop living out of the reproach of Egypt and start living in the abundance of where I've called you to go. You're my chosen people and I've called you to eat from this land. Some of you are looking at Jericho and you want to go back to Egypt because you want to go, go back to where you were. But that's putting your hand to the plow and looking back. It's not that he won't take you into eternity, but he can't use you here and now if your eyes are on where you've been with hearts to preserve the past instead of hearts that look with longing into where he's called you to go. Some of us want like this a little bit of dabbling back into our sinful nature. I'm not full-fledged where I was, but I still want access to it. And he's saying, no, no, no. You need to put your eyes on righteousness and find the joy of being completely liberated and put your eyes fully forward on liberation and stop opening the doorway of preservation to the sinful things of the past. Ah. This is such good news. Repentance is such a beautiful thing. We've just messed it all up. Sometimes when we leave a place of captivity and bondage or a desert season in our life, we walk out of it weary and with mindsets that were created by our experience, but were not created by the Spirit of God. Some of us are coming out of 2023 and we're like, I'm just tired. Y'all, you need to come out of agreement with that lie right now. You are not tired. Look at me. Become like a motivational speaker. You're not tired. <laughs> Who, who's that guy that like, he's on Netflix and he's just like yelling at people and he's got lawsuits because he tackles people. You're not weak. And he's like tackles people and stuff. Um, you're not tired. You need to come out of agreement with that. You've been through a long and weary season, but what God has before you is far greater than what's behind you. You need to burn the bridge to weariness and lethargy. And you just say, God, there's a fresh baptism and a new season for me. And I'm not binding myself. I'm not going to allow the weariness to influence my yes right now. I'm gonna bind myself to the truth that there's a fresh baptism right here and right now. We need to come out of agreement. Oh, I can't trust people. It's better to not trust him. No, no, no. Caution might appear like wisdom, but it is a spirit of fear masquerading as wisdom. And you're not called to live cautious. You're called to live brave and courageous. And we need to come into repentance and say, God, I repent for living more out of caution than living out of the courage of trusting you with my life. We must renew our devotion and in so doing cast off the reproach, the bitterness, the weariness, and the timidity of our former seasons. You know, when, um, <clears throat> um, I, when I was in worship in the 9 a.m., I, I heard the Lord, I'm gonna be spending some time on this, but I heard the Lord just say, what if discontentment is not the fault of the, sur the situation surrounding you, but the unresolved issues inside of you? And the Lord just spoke to me so clearly. He said, discontentment might be the human emotion that's the most misunderstood. It's an invitation to confrontation in you to call you back to personal responsibility. And there's some things right now we need, we need to burn the bridge to the past. And we, we, need to, we need to stop giving all of the emotional bondages of our life fancy, fluffy names 
Start calling it what it is. Burn the bridge and stop giving it an influence over the present moment because whoever puts his hand to the plow but looks back with a longing heart over the past and that means calling to mind the emotional attachment to the things of the past are not ready to be used in this moment for the kingdom. Why? Because the past will influence their yes. Is this making sense? Why don't you guys stand with me?